This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Should schools monitor students' social media to help prevent school shootings? Some say that's an invasion of privacy. Our teachers just think it's a waste of time. Also, we like to think society and schools have made progress when it comes to being inclusive. But the tragic story of a nine-year-old who came out as gay reminds us we may have not come as far as we want. Plus, should a teacher be fired for making a bad joke? What if the joke's about Hitler? Those stories plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Jason Staliga, what do you teach? Sophomore accelerated in general chemistry. Bakari Uku'u, now out of the classroom, but you are an administrator. What do you do? Middle school vice principal. And for our third teacher today, we're excited to introduce Kara Trojan. She's joining us by phone from Chicago. Kara, what do you teach? I teach sophomore English and freshman reading language arts. And we should say Kara is one of several new teachers from Chicago who are joining us this school year. And you'll hear her voice and the voice of her Chicago colleagues regularly on this podcast. Well, let's get to our first topic. How far should schools go in trying to prevent school shootings? Many of you listening to this may have encountered new security measures as you return to school this year following last year's string of high-profile school shootings. Things like metal detectors, more security guards, more secure entrances, locks on classroom doors, bulletproof windows. These are all becoming uh, really par for the course in our post-Parkland reality and even before that. But the New York Times recently reported on something else that at least 100 public school districts and universities around the country are doing that seems to go even further. Some districts, including some big ones like Los Angeles and Chicago, have signed deals with private firms that promise to monitor students' social media activity 24-7 in the hopes of catching potential school shooters. But there's little evidence that this actually works, and critics say it's a major invasion of student privacy. So these firms, they have names like Geolistening and Social Sentinel. The Times says they often pay social media companies like Twitter for data to be able to analyze posts in bulk. And they also use a strategy called geofencing, where they sweep up posts within a certain geographic area. Uh, some of these firms got their starts actually doing similar work for police departments, monitoring social media for potential criminal activity. So for my teachers learning about this, knowing about this now, what do you think? Right now, there's a campaign in Chicago called um, Erase the Spreadsheet. Some of our students uh, have actually had their names added to the spreadsheet based on, like, pictures they posted on social media. It's called the Gang Database. If the Chicago Police Department believes that an individual is a part of a gang, um, they are going to add their name and their information to the spreadsheet. Wow, so it sounds like in, Ch- in Chicago, at least, this is something that I mean, a lot of people in school and beyond are talking about. I, I want to know from Jason and, and Bakari, how does this issue strike you? Is this something where you have, have been aware of in the broad parameters that Kara is describing? Or, I mean, how has 
this issue come up for you? I don't think that it is an invasion of, of privacy for students since it's public domain, it's on social media. I do think it's a waste of money, though. I think that the forty to $60,000 they're spending for these corporations to sift through students' Facebooks could be a school counselor, could be a resource in the building that actually creates an environment that leads to more safety. These sound like measures they use to check off a box so that when a parent says, how do you keep my kid safe, they can say, oh, and we do this as well. But I don't think it actually leads to any significant outcomes or a reduction of school violence. Yeah, uh, the Times does report that districts have entered these agreements with very little public oversight. To Bakari's point, the price tag for these services is, we'll say, relatively cheap, typically less than $50,000. Carrie, you work in Chicago, a district identified in this Times article as one of the larger districts to employ this, or at least partly employ these strategies. You've already mentioned this is a topic of discussion uh, because of some things that the Chicago police are doing. What is the conversation in Chicago? Were you aware that CPS apparently does this? And and what is your reaction now that you at least know that they're trying to do it? I agree with Bakari. It's a waste of time, but it can also have dire consequences because of what I mentioned before, like this can affect a, a student's housing situation. This can affect their employment because I do teach high school and a lot of them do try to get jobs. I, I do think it's a waste of time. If we really wanted to, to get to the issues that trigger school violence, we need to create a more safe and, and emotionally uh, stable space for kids. I think that's ultimately what it is. When you see these type of posts on Facebook, I feel like that's kids crying out. And I think it also lacks context if you just put them through a search engine and, and looking for buzzwords. I, I wonder what are the protocols after these things are flagged. And it seemed like I remember reading right. the, I remember reading in the article about a student who got expelled over those over what he took as a joke and what this his class he said was a joke. So I just wonder what are the protocols after a student is flagged on based on these buzzwords that may come up on their social right. profiles. And, and the the scenario you're referring to a high schooler post, I think he was in Huntsville, Alabama. He was a high school student, uh, said something to the effect of, quote, I'm going to chop this teacher in the throat. Uh, well, he said that it was a kind of an inside joke within the class. I guess there are a lot of things that on social media can be misconstrued. Very much um, I mean, what are your experiences working with, I think two of you work in high school, one of you works in middle school. What are your experiences with with kids and, and on social media? I mean, there's just a lot of things that are said that if you read them out of context, they seem uh, pretty threatening or pretty disturbing. But Or even if you read them in context, they still can be, but they, like, they're children, right? And like... I think you have to think about means and motive and like those things don't always exist. And just because a kid goes online and say, oh, I want to beat up Mr. Akuu does not mean he has the means or the motive to do so or like or the ability to do so. And so I think that I just I feel like it lacks the context. And like if I just gave this kid, if I just suspended this kid, of course, he's going to be angry. So would I necessarily feel like that requires him to be flagged on the system? Like, no, I feel like. As a middle school um, administrator and dealing with middle school students, like this is the opportunity for them to learn to grow. They're going to make mistakes, and I just don't want that mistake to cost them the rest of their lives. Uh, Kara, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear more about the, what you mentioned right at the top. It sounds like you and and your colleagues and your students are having conversations related to this because of this this ongoing, um, I believe you, you said erase or delete the spreadsheet. Uh, well, yeah. What are the conversations you're having that as teachers t- talking to students trying to build up a level of trust as they know that they're out there being watched or being surveilled? I teach at a high school on the southwest side of Chicago. It's been labeled like one of the one of the top ten more dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago. And we are aware that, you know, there is gang activity in the neighborhood. We've uh, gone through professional developments on trauma-informed teaching, so that way we can identify any symptoms of trauma within our students. 
this year we have an advisory, and we're going to stay with that advisory class all four years of high school. So even though, like, they're a freshman this year and they're taking freshman English, and then next year they're going to take sophomore English and then following that, junior English, et cetera, they're always going to be in my advisory throughout their high school experience. And it's almost kind of like a school family. They know that they can come to me to, like, ask for me to, like, advocate for them, like, to another teacher. They know that they can ask me um, questions about, like, dating and, like, what are some healthy decisions with that. And then also they know that they can come to me if they just need to talk about anything regarding, like, emotional intelligence. And that's what we're trying to do in order to create a safe space and a stable environment for them in order to... um, express themselves and, you know, feel safe within our building. I mean, I would imagine um, them finding out their name is on a spreadsheet or finding out that their social media posts were being watched might disrupt that? Oh, of course. It would, I think it would crush some of them, especially if they are, if they know that they are not involved in any gang activity, but they've been labeled as such, they would feel like the world is against them once again. We, you know, we started this conversation because this was, this whole kind of social media monitoring was in response to, you know, mass school shootings. Kara, the situation you're describing and the context in which you're describing, it doesn't sound like these mass shootings are a problem, but there is, um, of course, a well-documented problem with community gun violence in Chicago, and I wonder how that affects how these types of things get analyzed within your district and your school. Um, Actually, at the March for Life demonstration when I was there, very few people were addressing the gun violence going on in Chicago, and most of them were just talking about, like, mass shootings going on in school. And my students kind of feel this way as well, that their narrative gets lost in the mainstream media. Uh, Bringing it back to Jason and Bakari, too, I mean, more broadly, and not to be flip on my part, but do you think the problem of school shootings, um, mass school shootings of the Parkland variety that we saw, you know, several of last year, do you think that problem is overstated? And I say that only because recently NPR just did an investigation where it found the official total of school shootings put out by the Federal Department of Education was wildly exaggerated in the 2015-16 school year. For instance, the Department of Education says there were nearly 240 school-related shootings. NPR followed up with every district or school cited in that list and confirmed only 11 incidents actually took place. Are school shootings actually a problem we should be paying so much attention to and, maybe to Bakari's point earlier, putting so much money in? Well, I think it goes back to having the safety of the students in mind. I think each district's become quite sensitive to what is possible to happen within their school community. And so they've put steps into place to do lockdown drills. My my new teacher orientation, we actually had like a, a, a gun go off and then we had to like role play to see how would we escape from a classroom and we had to do it in three different ways. We had a shooter just came up and shot us in the middle of a gym and, and what was the reaction to the teachers that was happening so that we would have like a perspective in case a shooting was to happen within our schools just to make sure that, you know, the first time you hear that gun go off, you know, what's that what's that emotional internal response that you have? Yeah, and so yeah. I guess my, my yeah. question, and I think, I mean, a lot of teachers have done stuff like that for the last mm-hmm. few years even. That's not that's not necessarily even a new thing. But I wonder like, do you feel like there is is there an overemphasis on this? Is yes. this like is this like a a problem that is a problem, but it, we are overemphasizing how big of a problem We're it is. We're definitely overemphasizing how big of a problem it is. When we think about school safety, 
gun violence is probably not the most, the highest threat to school safety. When I think about school safety, I think about students feeling safe around each other, not being bullied. I think about them not wanting to commit suicide, like having social emotional safety, and that is not a, it's not threatened by the the potential of gun violence necessarily. Gun violence is just very newsworthy. But that being said, you still it's that idea that it may not happen or it won't happen. But what if it does happen? I agree that we should definitely be prepared for the event thereof. But then I feel like, again, there are daily threats to our school safety, to students' safety at school, that we should have a much more larger conversation around and and a much more robust conversation that is taking place daily. So this one-off opportunity, this again, it's not the highest threat to the safety and security of our students. So, yes, we should be prepared, but we should not be spending unnecessary amounts of money and effort to show that we're prepared when there are actual real threats that happen every single day in the hallway that we don't put enough effort and resources behind. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. The challenges faced by LGBTQ students and their families were thrown into stark relief yet again recently with the heartbreaking story of a nine-year-old Jamel Miles. According to his mother, Leah Pierce, Jamel came out as gay over the summer. Pierce says when he did, she told him, I still love you, and she reports that Jamel was excited to return to his elementary school in Denver and wore fake fingernails on the first day of school. But he soon encountered what his mother calls homophobic bullying with some kids, according to Jamel's older sister, telling Jamel that he should kill himself. After four days of school, Jamel committed suicide. His death is part of a larger, disturbing trend. Youth suicide overall has been going steadily up the past few decades. Rates are higher for LGBTQ kids or kids struggling with their sexual orientation or gender identity. As Jamel Miles' grandmother put it, quote, the statement that it takes a village to raise a child is true and the village is broken, end quote. We can talk about a a lot of things here, but I guess the one thing I want to bring out immediately and what struck me about this story, and I'll I'll put my own personal bias on, on the table here. My son is two years old and that's not nine years old, but not that far away from nine years old. And I, as I read this story, I thought how Jamel Miles' mother and family treated his coming out, um, his questioning of his own sexual orientation is, was frankly how I would want to treat it, sensitively, with love, and then yet he still has to go to school. Um, and that, to me, is really, it, it, was, it, it was scary. And I, and I wonder, as teachers, how you, just, how you felt about this story and, and kind of school's role in it. So I, 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 my first question is, is, I wonder what resources they had at the school and what mechanisms were put into place to help our LGBTQ students in, in that particular situation. It's so important that, uh, that we start to, to really look at the, the emotional toll that it takes on a kid to be able to accept himself. As a nine-year-old, how difficult that must be, and then to be brave enough to put yourself out into the context of a larger school. And, and that sense of that kid feeling safe within that particular environment. Reading the story, I don't, I don't know if, if he had told his teachers. I don't know what conversations happened beforehand. I don't know if he had reached out to a counselor. What, what, was, what, what, was, what were the mechanisms put into place for him to be able to reach out to someone if he, when he was feeling bullied? 
That was my wonder that did the school, was the school even aware that this was taking place? I think oftentimes we assume that because it took place at school that the school knew, and that's not always the case. I think that's part of the role of the schools to create a plan of action for those type for those students and to make sure that they feel included and also to educate other students about that. I think that's part of the educational process. And so when I talked earlier about like other threats to school safety, like this is a perfect example. You're putting a student in a situation where students aren't prepared to engage with him in ways that he finds valuable to the point where he's ready to take his life. I think that that could definitely be mitigated through education and, and through other additional resources. You know, writer uh, Michael Arsenault, who is gay and writes um, frequently about his uh, his own sexuality, uh, wrote for NBC News after this incident, quote, if we live in a world in which a nine-year-old boy can be confident enough to tell his mom that he is gay and be affirmed by her only to have that self-acceptance stripped of him by other kids, how far along as a society are we really? I think, you know, oftentimes there is this kind of assumption of progress that we are getting, you know, we're getting better as a society. You know, it gets better campaign is maybe a very visible manifestation of that. But I don't know, as, as teachers, you experience this kind of stuff daily. Um, maybe not this exactly, but I mean, you, you see bullying, you see um, how prejudices and, and biases still exist. W- what are your thoughts? I mean, is it, is it still, what barriers do you find working within the schoolhouse, um, especially towards this particular issue of LGBT um, identity and, and, um, and gender nonconformity? Well, we have policies around it that is very accepting and open, yet we have not gotten a lot of professional development around. Like, so, like, when we talk about, like, race in classrooms, we do a lot about, like, cultural bias and, like, cultural uh, responsive teaching. We have not had similar right. trainings on, like, LGBTQ issues and gender nonconformity and, like, how to engage and how, like, that, that's not something that we've gotten support in and like learning about beyond what you may learn on from your own individual identities and just your own care for your students. Um, but that has not been a systemic, a systemic, um, it has not been addressed systematically um, across our district. And it seemed to resonate with you, Kara? I agree with Bakari in that we haven't received professional development per se on the LGBTQ community. I've tried just incorporating LGBTQ authors because I teach English and I'll, and I use that as a stepping stone into the conversation, but I don't try to force it into my classroom discussions because I feel like that wouldn't be helpful either. Uh, Jason, before we got on the mic, you have a, you were talking about some, some interesting experiences you've had in your district, which I should say you're, you're teaching in your district that you're in now for the first year. Um, but you had some interesting observations even early on in the school year in regards to this. I did, yeah. Uh, I was to uh, to Kara's point. Like I, I always play music every day, and so I, I bring out queer artists and lesbian artists, and we I, I kind of start the conversation with that so that they can uh, have some type of familiarity. But you know, at my old school we had a GSA, a Gay Straight Alliance, but in my new school we have a sexual orientation and gender orientation club, and we have meetings every couple weeks. And but we've we've done a lot of talk about safe zones and what safe zone means, but. To, to that point, I had an interesting conversation with a kid because so we talked about this being a safe zone and what that actually meant. And he he was like, well, I, I understand what the term safe zone means. He goes, but do teachers, do all teachers here truly embody that that sense of what a safe zone is? And so then we ended up having like a full class discussion on that, which is really helpful in order for kids to have, you know, a better understanding of, of the differences that exist between them. But yeah, so to be in a new school that, you know, everybody has safe zone stickers on their doors, there's an open door policy, we have 
We have counselors and therapists with that are actually in the building to help with those kids. We have you know direct lines for kids who are feeling suicidal because of of gender or sexual orientation issues, so that those resources, or resources, sorry, are in place to help those kids, so that a an event such as a suicide um, does not take place. And do, does all that feel um, helpful? Does all that feel authentic to you um, as a teacher who's coming from a different situation? Does, does that feel like it's, I don't want to say working, but it feels like it's it, it's helpful? Yeah, you know, just, just the open dialogue and conversation. Uh, one of the foreign language teachers came up to me and we have, a, we have the same student and the student wishes to identify as a boy. And so we just have these open dialogue conversations about how we deal with that and how we deal with those issues in the classroom and how do we deal with those issues in, uh, with the parents? Because the student wants us to refer to, refer to him as a masculine term, as he or him, but yet have not really had that conversation with the parent. And so we really, we really go back and forth about how do we communicate with parents? How do we, how do we have that dialogue with the students so that they understand that, that if you, if you want to be referred to by, by one pronoun in school, then, then you need to be able to have that conversation with your parents as well. And then connecting that with the, the counselor so that, you know, they can have those really hard, those, those types of conversations so that this transition for our students can happen, you know, as I'll never say easily because you can never think that it's going to happen easily, but it, it would allow them to be more at peace with uh, the direction of their of their lives. And before we got on the mic, uh, just Jason, one last point. Yeah. You, you said that you actually, at the beginning of the school year, got an email f- about s- students who are identifying as trans? Yeah, we had, we had communication with kids in our class that, that, that they, we understood like, uh, like their parents' response. We, we knew that, they, that it was accepting at home because of the name that it's a feminine name, but, but the masculine name that the student goes by. So that before they walked in, we did not create a climate of confusion or, or place that student in a spot where they would feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh. What is, for students who are in this situation, whether they're questioning their sexual orientation or maybe they are transitioning or thinking about transitioning or just they're confused or have questions about it, or maybe they don't. Maybe they're pretty, they, they know that they're LGBTQ. Within the school environment, what is like the most hurtful? I mean, like what, what is hurtful to them in, in a classroom setting when the topic arises? I mean, we, I think I might have a vision of what bullying looks like, but what... <coughs> But you're also describing like some institutional things where like maybe a teacher doesn't know which pronoun to use or, um, you know, maybe they're not getting support at home. Like what, what is hurtful to these students in the, class, in the, in the school setting? Well, I, I think one thing that is, <clears throat> that is really hard for a lot of schools is having teachers who are open, openly gay, that they can actually go to and talk to. I've been pleasantly surprised at just the number of teachers who are out within the school. And that you have role models for these uh, individual kids who are who are who are going through or identifying or coming to accept their their identity. So wh- one of the issues is just having avail- the availability of people that they can identify with. Imagine living your life without having anyone to talk to, and how isolated that that would feel. And you know, in Missouri, sexual orientation isn't protected by law. And so if you are going to be out in your classroom and in your school community. You know, your districts, uh, my district specifically said that, you know, we will back you that even though it's not a full protection by law, that, you know, that is something that we hold true within our school environment. But but knowing in the back of the mind as an educator that if I come out in my classroom or within my school community, you know, I could be fired per se, that that becomes really difficult. And therefore, a lot of teachers choose not to talk about it. And therefore, 
these kids don't have someone to go to. I think also the other part of that is that for my students at middle school, they don't even, they're not even aware that it's bullying. I think that understanding what bullying is and having a clear uh, definition of that, because some kids think it's just a put down or I just said a, a random joke. And yet that student who they're talking about feels they're getting bullied because they're getting that random joke from everyone or from multiple people. And so it's the consistency of feeling that. And so that one off moment, they feel like, oh, I wasn't bullied. I just said one random joke or like one random uh, name. And it wasn't bullying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the, the combination. So understanding that if this student's already um, different than most than other people and they're getting those one-off moments, then it becomes a consistency. That's where the bullying becomes an issue. I think to the school standpoint, because I deal with this all the time, is that if we don't know about those one-off moments and then all of a sudden we have parents upset because they feel like their child is getting bullied, but that student's never said anything about all the one-off moments. It just uh, They have that feeling of, of I'm getting bullied because it's coming from so many directions. And we can't, we can't solve problems that we don't know about. And so it's important that we create systems that allow those students to have a touch point that they can talk about those one-off yeah. moments. As an administrator, does it, I mean, getting back to the story we started with, Jamel Miles um, was bullied over the course of four days. And it was after four days that he uh, ended up committing suicide. As an administrator, does that, that's got to be scary. It, I mean, it is very scary, again, because I would hope that, the parents and, and that Jamel didn't feel like he didn't have anywhere to go. Like I just, I would want them to know that if we knew about it, we would do our best to to solve it. And that, and when we know about, like keeping us in the loop helps us be able to protect every student in our building. If, again, we can't solve problems that we don't know about. As much as we would love to to be mind readers and to know what all the issues our kids are facing, we just simply can if they don't report. We're going to move to our final topic, and then we'll do some headlines, and then kids these days. Well, what can teachers say or do? Who gets to decide when they've gone too far and how severe punishment should be? Those questions are at the heart of a fascinating story that caught our eye this week, published in the New York Times Magazine's annual education issue written by Jonathan Mahler. The story focuses on the case of Ben Frisch. Frisch had taught at Friends Seminary, an elite private Quaker school in Manhattan, for 34 years before being fired this past spring for making what both he and school administrators say was a bad joke. During a February pre-calculus class, Frisch was demonstrating different angles with his arm, and after raising and lowering his right arm several times with his arm up, he said, Heil Hitler. Okay. After several parents complained, some threatening to pull their kids from the school, which we should say here has an annual tuition of $50,000, Frisch was fired, and the firing caused students to protest on campus in support of Frisch. The school newspaper ran an illicit issue in support of Frisch, and Frisch himself is now in arbitration with the school challenging his firing. I wanted to just touch upon this briefly because I found the story fascinating. What uh, Teachers, what do you think this teacher's punishment should have been? Do you agree with the, the move to fire him? Uh, what do you think? I think that there should have been like some degree of progressive discipline. It sounded like they went from zero to 100 really quickly. And I don't know what, what his discipline file was before, because it also talked about a parent referencing he's, this is not the first time he's made inappropriate jokes or yeah, well, does yes, inappropriate yeah. things. Yeah. This very well may have been the straw that broke this camel, camel's back. But if this was like the first incident for him, then I think it would have been more of a progressive discipline. But if he's worked there for 34 years, I, I'd imagine that this was, they wouldn't have went to firing him or making him either resign or to be fired, to terminate it, if that was the case. It seemed like he would have had, there would have been more of a conversation there. So says our administrator. Jason. I think about 
all the things that I have said and done in my classroom over 16 years. Have you ever made a Have you ever made a Hitler joke? I have not made a Hitler joke, but I have said uh, words and comments that I'm sure I look back upon and th- just say to myself, "How did I not get fired for this?" You know, the the thing about this story that I that I thought was interesting was that the minute he did it, like he recognized he was wrong. I mean, and he, and then he had a conversation with his kids almost immediately following what he had done. And he said in the story that he was referencing a Mel Brooks film. And uh, I think to myself... The some, producers. The, I mean, producers, the producers, yeah. yeah. I'm getting to the point where I'm a little older, <laughs> and uh, I make cultural references that that my kids don't understand. And, like, if he was in a room with adults and he made that comment, maybe the adults would have understood the context of what he was doing. I, I don't believe that it was that there was any intent of malice... You know, maybe putting on administrative leave and having like a conversation about, you know, proper behavior within the classroom. But if this is the third or fourth thing he's done over 34 years and one every 10 years is just slightly off, you know, just off off color, uh, I don't think he should have been fired. You're saying that the high school kids nowadays will not be. They won't know a lot about Mel Brooks films and <laughs> musicals. Yeah, it's, it's just they wouldn't get that reference. <laughs> they wouldn't get that reference. No. Ikara, is it just is it inevitable that you know teachers are talking for hours at a time every day? Hitler jokes aside, it's inevitable, right? That you're going to say something that could be interpreted the wrong way, or could possibly offend someone, or just be a bad joke. So, I'm a I'm an I'm an English teacher. Um, I'm very good at building relationships with my students, and I'm also a union delegate for my school. So the union de- delegate in me agrees with Bakari, like there should have been some sort of progressive discipline, and he probably should have been put on administrative leave. But if this is a pattern in the classroom, I just think about how my students would react, and that would not have flown at, at the school I work for Uh I could I could actually see like some of my students like refusing to go to his class if he made a joke like that. Mm. Um, and as a union delegate and, or someone who has the the union viewpoint, if this had happened to your colleague, what would have been your? What would I, you, I would have asked him like, "What do you think you're doing? <laughs> like, why? Like, I don't even understand how that joke could have actually helped teach the students anything about angles and geometry." Jason, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but I mean, are there, have there been moments in your career uh, for any of you where you um, maybe didn't like face discipline, but you felt like, oh gosh, I've gone too far. Or you had to, you've had to like actually backtrack with students and say, listen, I'm sorry about what I said yesterday or earlier. Has that ever happened? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're, we're all human, right? <laughs> yeah. So we all make mistakes. We all have a slip of the tongue. Yeah. Or like we are. Uh, we all have that one student who we wanted to say something and then actually accidentally slipped out. Um, so I will finish with this final question. So, you know, within this article, the, the comparison was made by some to the free speech battles that you're starting to see on college campuses that an environment of sensitivity and offense is kind of like perc- percolating down to high schools. And that, you know, you're, you're talking more about safe spaces and students being offended by a lot more things nowadays in high school now than also in college. I mean, have you all found yourselves being more careful or thoughtful about what you say, or do you find that just to, I mean, those types of, of, you know, social anxieties to be just completely off base? I am conscious of every word that comes out of my mouth now. It was actually my, one of my biggest fears about moving to a new school 
was that I had become so comfortable and so ingrained in the culture of my old school yeah. and, and, and students understood who I was and I had their brothers, sisters, cousins, et cetera, and I knew all the families. And then when you and, and so, you know, in many ways I always felt like I could get away with a little bit more. I could always toe the line a little bit more. And but now that I'm in a new environment, in a different culture, in a new community, you know, I'm I'm really sensitive about how, what I say and how I say it. Um, You're I, the new kid in school. I'm the new kid in school, yeah. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of times where comments like, maybe not specifically like Mr. Frisch, but comments that I think are going to be really funny that, that just, you know, come right off right out of my mouth. Or I want to be, I'm like, and then I like, I pause. And the kids know that I pause. And I'm like, I'm just going to hold that thought. Like it was, a, it was something you would have been comfortable saying to your old student body. Old student body or even my friends, yep. but not to the students that I'm teaching. Well, before we go... Let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Teachers in Oklahoma struck for better pay this past spring, and voters apparently got the message. In recent elections, 12 Republican incumbent state lawmakers who earlier this year voted against a small tax increase to fund a teacher pay raise all lost their primaries. Last spring, some thought the Oklahoma Education Association called off the strike too early and didn't get enough concessions from the legislature. But a strike leader at that time said... We got here by electing the wrong people. Now we have the opportunity to make our voices heard at the ballot box. Seems that she had a point. Low-income students who want to go to college should take the SAT multiple times. That's the headline conclusion of a new working paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research. The researchers analyzed millions of SAT test takers and found that students who retook the SAT improved their score by an average of 90 points. That jump was even bigger on average for lower-income students. And students who retook the test were also more likely to enroll in a four-year college the authors of that study surmise that equalizing retake rates among income levels would close the college enrollment gap between upper and lower income students by 20 percent. And finally, from the hell no department, the principal of an elementary school in Hector, Arkansas, was bitten by a snake as she tried to remove it from a second grade classroom in her school. Yes, the snake was found by the teacher coiled up in a corner of the class. The principal, according to Fox 16 TV in Little Rock, had previously worked for the Arkansas State Parks Department and said she knew how to handle snakes. But when she picked this one up, it apparently latched onto her thumb. Luckily, the snake was not poisonous. Those were some of the headlines from other education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, kids these days, but first... This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe. Leave us a review and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Jason Bakari, you're old at this. You're experienced at bringing in kids these days. So we'll let you go first to give kind of a model for Kara, who's new this time. So, Jason, what are your kids into for the beginning of this school year? 
I can't believe I'm going to say this. They're still into memes. It's been two years, and my kids say they're still into memes. I when are they never not going to be into memes? I don't anymore? know. They're like the memes uh-huh. are a thing now. It is a thing. So what are the, what are the what are the what are the hot memes? Oh yeah, I didn't ask those questions. Uh, Science, Olymp- <laughs> <laughs> Science Olympiad was big this week for our kids, as well as uh, getting back into the uh, fall sports. And one more thing: Happy birthday, Kyle. Okay, well you don't have to say that, but thank you so much. Yes. That's, I'm sure that's what your kids are into, my birthday, yeah. What is, what is Science Olympiad, by the way? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of little small competitions. If you go back to, like, middle school, you know, it was building. It's getting a set of supplies and having to build a structure. You know, I remember the old egg drop, you know, with the mm-hmm. – you had the popsicle sticks and the straws and, and the parachute that you had to make, and it had to drop a certain amount of distance. So it's looking at that, and I think they also kind of tie with robotics as well, yeah. Bakari, what are your kids into? Um, dress down Fridays. So it's something we did last year. Our school, our school wears uniforms. Um, and so our, we have not actually officially started dress down Fridays, but kids in an effort to advocate for us to start dress down Fridays have just decided to make Fridays dress down. Um, <laughs> so what is, what is the, uh, what's, is there a consequence for that? There normally is. Um, given it's the beginning of the school year, we're, you know, trying to not come off as too hard heavy handed so we're trying to give in a little bit and, and, and get it started sooner than what we anticipated starting it um, <laughs> but they they want their dress down Fridays okay so dress down Fridays so go ahead Kara. did they just all did they just all show up out of uniform and a, a like, good like, number of, all of us? exactly a good number of them do that um, so. <laughs> maybe if you had that surveillance technology right, you we could have known <laughs> yeah. that they were going to be coming in jeans yeah. All right, they can't punish all of us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, Kara, <laughs> you get the drift. What are your kids into these days? Um, our meme game is pretty strong. Um, I have hallway passes that I made out of the Cardi, uh, out of the baby Cardi B meme. <laughs> so we like to talk about that. Um, and they just been, it's known around the school that I love music and stuff. So everyone is always coming up to me to like, talk about like, the new, like, Lil Uzi Vert album or, like, the new Cardi B album. Or, like, what do I think about, like, Ariana Grande? So, we've been talking about that. And what do you think about Ariana Grande? <sighs> Poor girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Thanks to our teachers this week, Jason Staliga, Bakari Ukuu, and Kara Trojan in Chicago. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. 